you know, what God is kind of teaching us through um, Ephesians is that, you know, he has these plans in all of eternity that he wants displayed in community. Um, and Ephesians is really a great book to build a church from because you get this incredible doctrine of who we are and then what we're meant to do. Uh, and so it's going to serve us very well as a young church to be studying through this book. Last week, we looked at verses 1 through 2. Uh, today, we're in verses 3 through 14. Uh, this is one of the craziest sentences in all of Scripture. 202 words with no punctuation. It's just one sentence um, by Paul in the Greek. And so we're going to have fun today. I'm going to try and do it. We'll see. Pray for me as I preach. Uh, it's such a privilege, though, to be doing this. So let's read this glorious Um, basically song of praise, um, this blessing to God. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we pray and ask that You would bless the preaching of Your Word. And in Jesus, in Him, we pray. Amen. One of my favorite moments in all the year is Christmas morning. I'm sure it is for many of us in the room. 
Uh, I remember vividly every Christmas what it looked like in my family where we would all go to sleep, obviously the night before, we'd put out the food for the reindeers and, you know, Santa and my dad would have a great feast and a beer every Christmas Eve and he would come, you know, because that was what was actually happening, sorry to break it to you, uh, and we'd wake up in the morning early and we'd come, oh, hello, and we'd come down and there would be like a half-eaten nibbled carrot and the cookie crumbs and there under the fireplace, because we had a big old fireplace, were three massive Santa stockings full to the brim of presents. Uh, and the joy and expectation in us three boys, because I, I got two brothers, and we would be so excited. But we always had to wait for mum and dad to get up, and we weren't allowed to get them up. And then for some reason, every Christmas, they would decide they were going to go for a walk together. So they'd go for a walk, and we're just itching, ready. And then it was family mango time, and so we were ready for presents. But by the time we finally got to present time, it was all on for young and old, and we were ready, and we loved the joy of opening every present, inspecting each present, seeing what each other got, the wrappers going everywhere, and by the end of it, uh, you know, the floor was a sea of wrapping paper and gifts, and there was showers of thanksgiving and praise and just incredible joy as we were excited and elated with each present. That's the kind of picture we have here in Ephesians 3.14. For Paul, he's just thought of Christmas morning, um, but it's spiritual Christmas morning. And he's he's looking ahead and going, whoa, I've got this gift. I've got this gift. Uh, and, And he's expressing that in this massive section of praise. Uh, Once I got married, though, I realized that different families have different ways of doing Christmas morning, and it's not all the same. You see, I I kind of summarized how the Spring family did it. But when I got to the Butler family, um, it, it looked a little bit different. You see, in the Spring family, the way we would do it is we would actually take one gift out at a time, unwrap it, inspect it, enjoy it, thank each parent, and then the next child would open another gift. And we would do that present by present by present the whole way through the sack of presents. And it would take hours in the end. It was incredible. It would take forever. But, you know, we loved it. That's how we did it. Then I went to, when I was dating Maddie, I I think um, the first time I was there for their Christmas, the kids woke up in the morning and they unwrapped their Santa stocking and all the presents, the little ones were in there that weren't even wrapped and they just all kind of looked at them individually and were like, oh cool, here we go. And then they went to their present tree and everyone just started unwrapping in no order at all and oh yeah, thanks for this and and it was all done in five minutes. I was like, what is going on here? There's no enjoyment or marinating in the moment. Um, But I think in some ways, the Butler family Christmas kind of represents this passage a little bit more than the Spring family. Because Paul just prays after praise after praise for each blessing. He's just ripping open, and it's really quick and really big and hard to take account of. But the way I want us to actually go through the passage this morning is the Spring family way. I want us to kind of go through each of these blessings. Um, If you read in verse 3 again, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this, is, this sets the theme of the whole section. This whole section is a praise song, not a theological essay. So blessed be God who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then verses 4 through 14 is Paul just going, and another one, 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 and it's Butler Family Christmas. But what I want us to do is kind of go through a bit more slowly and kind of go, how can we kind of pick up each one 
and at least in one sermon, examine it for a little bit and start to see some of the glory behind the incredible present that it is. It's not hard to tell when someone enjoys a good Christmas present. You don't have to tell them, okay, now you say thank you, now you get excited, now you rip it open and start using it. You see that with kids, like whenever Jasper gets Lego, it's just like all on. It's, it's scr- not screaming, but he goes for it, he rips it open, he's already starting to make it. It's also not hard to tell when someone doesn't really like their present. Um, they're like, oh, I could maybe use it for my cat. Uh, you know, they try and come up with a reason straight away. We're going to see in this passage that Paul is very excited about the gifts that he has. Uh, and what it's there to do is kind of show us um, where do we stand with these spiritual blessings? Do we have the same kind of level of excitement, um, appreciation, and joy as Paul? Or are we a bit more like when you get a gift card? It's like, oh, yeah, that's nice. Maybe I can use that in the future. But you kind of don't have that same excitement as when you get like a physical material present. Uh, So this passage is going to kind of reveal the gifts we've been given. It's going to reveal our hearts, how we respond to them. Um, And the point of the whole passage is that Paul is going to outline all these spiritual blessings so that we would have every reason for passionate praise. That's the point. That's what Paul's trying to get done. And you notice that the presents that Paul is getting us to open in this passage are not material, physical presents. He calls them spiritual blessings. Now, at first, you could be like, oh, man, I want the material blessings, you know. Uh, And the spiritual, they're sort of like a gift card. They're a bit too far off. I can use them in the future, but are they real for now? Uh, But what we're going to see is that actually spiritual blessings are far greater than material ones. Imagine this passage said, Blessed be the God and Father who's blessed us with every material blessing. He's given us all a new car today and a new house and all the iPhone products you could ever want. The problem with that would be, although they would be great blessings, over time they would break, they would need maintenance, they need insurance, they could get stolen or lost. But the fact that here we are expounded our spiritual blessings that are kept in the heavenly places means that these blessings are untouchable. These blessings are eternal. And these blessings correspond with our reality of being in the Holy Spirit. And so, although we might be like, I want the material, today we're going to see actually these spiritual blessings are the greatest ones we could ever receive. So what are these spiritual blessings? What presents are we unwrapping today? We might have noticed in that first verse there that Um, The Godhead, the Trinity, is alluded to. You have, blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Um, How do you receive spiritual blessings? Well, through the Holy Spirit. Now, there's many ways we could attack this passage and kind of see what God has to say, but a helpful way is to use that Trinitarian structure. Um, And so we're going to, that's how we're going to break up today in three points. Um, Point number one, In verses 4 to 6, we're going to see this gift, that we are chosen by the Father. Point number 2, in verses 7 through 10, we're going to see that we are redeemed by the Son. And point number 3, in verses 11 through 14, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. These three incredible gifts are all here to give us every reason for passionate praise. So let's jump in and and start unwrapping some of the gifts. Uh, Point number one, we are chosen by the Father. 
The first set of spiritual blessings that Paul wants to highlight to the Ephesian believers is that they were chosen by God himself. Let's read verse 4 again. 4 through 6. Even as, um, that little even as there is kind of there to show us that the topic sentence was verse 3, and now everything that follows is expanding on verse 3. So everything from verse 4 to 14 is connected to verse um, 3 there. So even as, or just like, or this is what I mean, this is what the spiritual blessings are. Number one, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love... He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. This first gift is that God has chosen a people before the foundation of the world. That God has called out and looked out in, but before he created anything and chosen whom he wants to set his love upon. The story of the Bible is a story of election from the beginning to the end. God is always in control, choosing and calling out those whom he wants. We see it with Abraham. He was a wandering pagan worshiper and God chose Abraham and said, I'm going to make a nation out of you. We see with Israel, the nation that God made out of Abraham, God says to them, I did not choose you because you were great or a mighty or an influential nation, but because of the opposite. The whole way through the Bible, we have this picture of God, the eternal sovereign one, choosing out a people to set his favor and grace upon. We were chosen by God. Yet in our experience of coming a Christian or finding God, we kind of come at it from our human perspective. And so we kind of naturally think, oh, I chose God. I remember when I became a Christian, I put my faith in Jesus. But what Paul is revealing to us and the Ephesian Christians is he's peeling back the curtain a little bit and saying, well, before you chose him, he chose you. And the only thing that led you to him was him leading you to himself. And that makes our salvation secure and definite. Because before he made anything, you were on his heart. <laughs> it's, a, it's an incredible, mind-boggling truth. Not just in general. God was just choosing a random set number and you happen to be a part of it. But in his eternal plan, you, if you're a follower of Christ, he chose you in Christ, before the foundation. It's a mystery. We don't understand how all this works. Uh, we don't, can't kind of figure it out because we're like, oh, but what about my free will and what about my choice? That's not the point of this passage here. The point of this passage is meant to lead us to praise. We are meant to step back and go, however you did it, whatever you were doing, you chose us and I'm going to praise you for that. Bless you, God, for choosing me. Um, one songwriter put it like this, and I think this kind of puts the attitude how we should kind of deal with these choosing passages well. It says, how can it be you chose someone like me to declare your praise for the glory of your name? In reaction to this doctrine of election, this doctrine that we have chosen, it should lead us to go, why me? <laughs> but I'll take it. <laughs> but it's, it's that both thing. It's like, I shouldn't be thinking, 
well, why do you choose people? It should be, why did you even choose me? That's kind of the heart. So for what purpose, though, uh, did God choose us? So he chooses a people. Why does he do it? Well, keep reading the rest of the verse. That we should be holy and blameless before him. God is electing a people to bring them to himself that he may dwell and bless with a people who are holy and blameless. You see, God is a holy God without sin, blemish, not even a hint of it. And so God chooses out a people and draws them to himself because he wants a pure and unstained and untainted bride. And he secures that through Christ. That's the only way we can become holy and blameless. Those two words there, holy, means to be set apart for special use. And blameless means to be untainted or without sin. That's the grand purpose of what God is doing in his election. He's not just saving us to bring us to heaven. He's saving us that we might become holy and blameless. That is, like him. You see, how much you love holiness and blamelessness is an indication of how much you love God and truly know him. If you do not want to be holy and if you do not want to be blameless, then I would question whether you actually know God himself. Because God loves righteousness. He is holiness. And if you love God and are chosen by Him, you ought to love it too. You ought to increasingly, as you follow Him, hate sin, hate impurity, hate unfaithfulness, hate blame, hate guilt, hate all those things, and start to love His ways. Because that's why He saved you. That's why he adopted you in. So as we kind of sit here and think about this blessing, choosing to be holy, how do you feel about holiness this morning? What do you, are you pursuing holiness for yourself? Is that a goal? Not so that you can get right with God, but so you can become more like him and be in better fellowship with him. In fact, that's what the second half of this entire book Um, is all about. Chapters 4 through 6 in the book of Ephesians is all about how we can be holy and blameless. Ephesians 4 verse 1 says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Because you've been chosen, live as a chosen one. And if you truly are chosen, you will want to do that. It's your privilege and pleasure. But we're not just chosen in general. Let's read verse 5 now, and we're going to see how God makes it very specific. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Paul takes the the general election, he chose us in him, and now makes it very particular, very intimate, and he makes it family. God chose people to be holy and blameless so that he can have new sons and daughters. And that's indeed who we are because of the gospel. We're brought into the very family of God. Notice the love and affection in those words. In love. He predestined us for adoption to himself. And then we are adopted as sons. It's incredible. 
There's no cold Calvinism, no cold doctrine here. This is a God who loves his people, who wants you in his presence, you specifically. I don't know. <laughs> My wife loves me, but I don't know if she would, in the, before the creation of the world, choose to spend all of eternity with me in my present sinful state. But the Lord chose you and wants you to be his son or daughter if you are in Christ. We should banish any thought of this cold, mechanical, robot God who, you know, picks and chooses. And that's not the picture of the Bible ever. It's a loving father gathering his little children and saying, get back in the family. J.I. Packer speaks of adoption as really the best way to describe the relationship of a Christian to God. Adoption is the, the better yet of the gospel. It's incredible that we are saved by God, but even better than being saved, we are adopted into his family. J.R. Packer says it like this, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. How well do you know God as your father this morning? Do you relate to him as an adopted son or daughter with intimacy and reverence and respect, both of those things? Now, for some of us, that may be harder than others, depending on what our earthly fathers and our male role models may have been like in our life. But whatever your story is, God is the true and good father who calls you to himself and will always be for your good. So you can always come to him with that intimacy that you've always desired for with your own father if you've never had it, which is an incredible and beautiful truth. And so here we see that we're chosen, but not just in general, as specific sons and daughters. And that's how we're to relate to him. That's how our prayers are to look. That's how our life is to look. Christianity is not like compartmentalized life where we have our God moment here for an hour and a half and then the rest of our life we just live as if God doesn't exist and we come back and then we have a God moment again and we do that repeat 52 weeks a year, 70 years of our life and we get to heaven and then we're like, oh, I didn't even know who you are and you spend all of eternity with a God you don't really know. Christianity is an ongoing, deep relationship with the Lord where you're telling him about the struggle you're having. You're telling him about the, you know, the pain you're feeling. You're in this conversation. You're pleading with him. You're asking him for things. It's relationship. And you were chosen for it through Christ. And if you haven't yet experienced that relational presence with God, ask him for it. Pursue him. And who knows, he may answer that and reveal himself to you in that way. So Paul finishes here. According, so all of this is according to the purpose of his will. Or better yet, in the original, it's a bit more like according to the pleasure of his will. So God is not grumpy and stingy like, oh, I've got to save all these people. That's not, that's not his plan. It's, it's his pleasure. This is what he planned. He could have done anything with the world. This was his best plan. There is no plan B and you are not his plan B. This is his plan, and he's working everything out in accordance with his will. 
to the praise, verse 6, of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. We receive all these blessings through being in Christ and the point of it is meant to be for the praise of his glorious grace. The implications of this are profound and very encouraging. Because we are chosen by the Father, we get to unwrap this gift. This is what it means. Our salvation is secure because the Almighty God is the one that makes it happen. Your salvation ought to lead to holiness. And holiness is not a drag. Holiness actually opens you up to true life. And that's a part of the blessing. Your salvation is intimate. He calls you as a son and a daughter. And your salvation is for His glory, not your own. So, because we are chosen by the Father, we have every reason for passionate praise of Him. That's point one. Let's move now to point number two. We are redeemed by the Son. Let's read just verse 7 and 8, but we're going to look at verses 7 to 10 in this section. In Him, that is, in Christ, and that verse, that kind of expression is like 11 or 12 times in this passage. It's kind of a big deal. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which he lavished upon us with all wisdom and insight. Here Paul now moves his direction from being chosen in the Father to being redeemed in the Son. And this is indeed the center point and the high point of the section, of the praise, is verses 7 through 10. The redemption that has been bought through Jesus Christ himself. Paul brings up this language of redemption. Redemption being the language of the Old Testament for how God saved his people, Israel, out of slavery in Egypt. To redeem a slave was to buy them back from their slave master and bring them into your household. To redeem someone was to bring them from slavery into freedom. And that's indeed the picture that Paul is giving us here. The gift that God has given to us is that he has redeemed us through his son. You see, we were slaves, though we never knew it. And if you're not yet a believer here this morning, um, the Bible would teach you that actually you're a slave, and we all were slaves of sin, Satan, and death. We're born rebels outside the king's castle. We live according to the passions of our will and desire. We live not for his glory, but our glory. And we think all things are good, but we don't realize that the king is coming back one day to vanquish the rebels. And so what God does is he sends his son, the redeemer, Jesus Christ, into the world to purchase back his sons and daughters and bring them into his kingdom again and give them full clemency and pardon for all their rebellion. That's what Paul is saying here. And that's why he's praising, because in him we have redemption. Jesus himself said it like this, Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The ransom price has been paid 
Satan, in a sense, has been paid off. Not that that's exactly how the Bible talks about it, but you kind of get this picture that our guilt, our sin, our debt that we have to God has been paid off. How? Through the Savior, bearing our sin on the cross. It's scandalous. If you keep reading, how did that all come about? Well, in Him we have redemption. How? Through His blood. That's shorthand for the cross. Through His blood. Galatians 3, 13 and 15 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. It's incredible. Christ redeemed us. We stand under the judgment of the law of God. How? He becomes the curse. He receives the full punishment that the law stipulates, which is death for sinners, and redeems us from the curse of the law so it no longer stands on us anymore. How? Through the shedding of His blood. If you look at 1 Peter 1, 18-19, it says this, knowing that you were, again, the same language, ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold. So you can't buy God off. You can't give enough money away. Even if you gave all your money away to our church, which, you know, I won't stop. No, I'm kidding. Don't do that. You can't buy your way to God. You can't do good things your way to God. You can't do it. How we bought back? With the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. See, bringing out blood here brings us back to the sacrificial system in the temple where the Israelites would come year after year and offer sacrifices for sins and um, God would look over their sin because of the animal sacrifice in anticipation that one day the Son of God would come and the final sacrifice would be delivered, His very own body. So that God would look over us and see no sin if we are in Christ. And that's exactly what He goes on to say. The forgiveness of our trespasses. That's what it means. We're redeemed through his blood. What does that mean? We have forgiveness of every time we've stepped over the boundary mark. Every sin, every iniquity, even the ones this morning, even the ones yesterday, after you became a believer. And if you're not yet a believer, God can deal with all of your mess in one go. Through his son. Psalm 103 verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. We can have a clear conscience before God. Nothing hanging over our head because his son was sent and his blood covers us. How do we access that? Well, 1 John 1, 9 says this, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The gifts don't get better than this, in a sense, apart from adoption, which I already said is the better, yeah. But it's almost like this is the moment This is the only hope we have. If we have not this, we have nothing. Doesn't matter what else anyone can give you in all the earth, 
If you have not the sins forgiven in your life, you have no eternal hope. Yet we do have it. Paul goes on, he says, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. Again, this rich imagery that God is not stingy. He's, I love that word, lavishing. <laughs> lavish. It's got a lavish word. That, that's kind of what God is. He's spooning out grace upon grace upon grace. And he has storehouses of grace. And he's not stingy with his grace. He loves to give grace to any who come to him and confess their sins. Do you know this experience of true and complete forgiveness. Do you know it deep down in your soul? Or do you have lingering doubt? Maybe God will bring that up. Maybe I've got to keep working to keep myself in. This gift that Paul is unwrapping here is that we have complete and total forgiveness in Christ, lavished upon us. Um, A Sovereign Grace song from the latest album, um, oh, Lord, my rock and my redeemer goes like this. And, and this should be the sort of outcry of a heart of someone who has unwrapped this gift. What do you, what, you unwrap the gift of redemption and you say, oh, oh, Lord, my rock and my redeemer, gracious savior of my ruined life. That's when you know you've actually dealt with your sin and you can see it face to face. You've ruined your life. That's what sin is, ruining your life with God. But then, my guilt and cross laid on your shoulders. In my place, you suffered, bled, and died. But that's not the end. You rose. You rose, sorry. You rose, the grave and death are conquered. You broke my bonds of sin and shame. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, may all my days bring glory to your name. If that's the song of your heart, then I think you've, you've unwrapped the gift and you kind of get what you're looking at. And in that, you see um, this idea of resurrection, that the cross is not the end of the story, that Jesus came back from the dead because God's plan wasn't finished with the death of his son on the cross. God has an even bigger plan than our personal salvation individually. Let's read verse 9 through 10. So in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to, and this is the plan, right? To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is the the wide-angle lens of what God is doing in the world. The, The Zoom in, saving people, saving people, saving people, saving people. Zoom out, ultimately, at the end of the ages, God will wrap everything up together. And that, that word, the, the plan, um, is like a household language. So this is God's plan for the house of the cosmos, the universe, is to bring everything in unity to Jesus Christ. He's redeeming the whole universe. You see, that's why you know, our life here matters and, and everything matters is because God is bringing it all together into Christ. He's not just going to burn it and toss it all away. But in fact, this world and the cosmos is going to be redeemed through Jesus. 
and we're all going to be brought into subjection underneath him. And God will write the world again. He will write the cosmos again so that it works the way it was meant to. You see this language here kind of picks up back to the Garden of Eden where man and God dwelt in unity and in harmony and creation dwelt in unity and harmony and it was very good. But then sin brought a rupture into the world and brought slavery to Satan's sin and death which God had to redeem his people from. But Romans 8 teaches us that God is actually redeeming the world. And so here we see that in Christ, the whole plan for what God is doing, the wide-angle lens, is he's bringing everything together under the headship of Jesus Christ so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then for all eternity, those who have bowed the knee to Jesus here on earth will worship him forever in heavenly bliss, enjoying him, in a new, restored creation, working for him, working in the way we were meant to work, without curse, without pain, without animosity between us and God. That's what God's doing in the world. And he's revealed this mystery, verse 9, to us. We know it now. Like, you all know it now. It's right there. You know where the end of the world is going. Someone says, what's going to happen at the end of the world? I know. And it's not arrogant. It's a mystery, not everyone knows it, but it's revealed to us in Christ that he will unite everything in Jesus, which means that we can have confidence. We may not know what's going to happen in the next election. We may not know what's going to happen with our particular political issues or in our own lives, but we know this, God wins. That's the end point. That's what he's doing. And not only does he win, but he wins the way he wanted to according to his purpose. As you can see, it's a big passage, right? So this gift, verse 7 to 10, God is redeeming us and the world in Christ to bring everything into him. That's his plan. So Paul's unwrapped this gift, and the point of it is, again, to the praise of his glorious grace. So because we are redeemed by the Son, we have every reason for passionate praise. Chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, point number three, sealed by the Spirit. Let's read verse 11 through 14. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of of his glory. In these verses here, Paul is kind of going back to um, the first gift, the gift of choosing and election. And he's saying that in Christ, we were chosen to be holy and blameless. We were chosen to be adopted. And now we're chosen to receive an inheritance uh, that we are part of the Abrahamic covenant. We are part of God's plan. We're actually going to be in on the spoils. So there's a better Christmas yet to come, the inheritance of the sons of God um, and daughters of God in Christ. We've obtained that inheritance. Okay? And again, it's according to the purpose of his will. Get a theme here. God's doing what he wants to do. He's getting it done, even though it doesn't look like it in our world. Um, and again, verse 12, to the praise of his glory. Then verse 13. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, 
were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Paul now sort of unwraps this final gift that we're going to look at today, which is the receiving of the Holy Spirit. The language he uses is language that we probably don't use very often, that, that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Uh, that language kind of goes back to the ancient practice of using a, a seal to indicate your possession of something. So they would have like a costly stone or um, an iron thing that they would brand animals with to say, this is mine. And you would dip your kind of ring in the ink or the gel or the wax or whatever you did, and you'd stamp it and say, this is mine. And so in Christ, Paul is saying here, we have received the Holy Spirit as a seal. This is how you know you're a Christian. You are God's possession because he sealed you with his Holy Spirit. If you do not have the Holy Spirit, you are not a Christian. If you are not full of the Holy Spirit, in that sense, being baptized in the Spirit upon believing in Him, you are not yet a Christian. You don't have the seal of ownership. It'd be like, how do you know that something is yours? You go to the little, you know, kids' uniforms at school. We have a little tag, you know, Evie Spring on everything. How would we know it's Evie's shirt? Well, it says Evie Spring. I don't know why her shirt. Anyway, maybe her socks. That'd be better, her socks. How do we know it's Evie's socks? Oh, we look. Okay, there we go. Evie Spring, we know it's ours. Well, on that last day, how will God know, technically in this kind of analogy, that you are His? Well, His Holy Spirit is in you. He dwells in you. It's a gift that we're given. Jesus said, it's better that I should go, that you would receive the helper. It's an incredible gift that we often overlook as Christians, is the gift of the Holy Spirit. The eternal God dwelling in us. It's, it's mind-boggling. It's hard to um, put it all together. And notice that it's the promised Spirit. And the Old Testament believers didn't have the same manifestation of the Spirit that we do, okay? Key leaders like Moses, Joshua, and David, and, and kings, and priests, and prophets had a measure of the Spirit, but not the whole community. They had the temple where they would go and enter the presence of God, but now in Christ, we have the promised Spirit that was promised, say, let's read Ezekiel 36. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you so that, or and, cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See that again. We're chosen to be holy and blameless. We're sealed with the spirit to walk in his statutes and ways. So we are more blessed than the Old Testament believers, not just because we have Christ, but we have the Holy Spirit in us to empower us for holy living. That's why we can have hope in our pursuit of holiness is because we're not, you know, doing it on our own. We're not straining. We're empowered. And so the Christian life is a life of resting in the Spirit, abiding in the vine, and then producing fruit out of that position. But that's not all. Verse 14 so the Spirit seals us, so we know we're God's, and He's the guarantee of our inheritance. More literally, He's the, the deposit. 
Okay, and so our experience of the Spirit is just a deposit of what we will experience and inherit in the kingdom to come. 